0: Galatians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever taken a break and thought you just need to take a break from uh, social media, TV, the radio, news, whatever, and you say, for this amount of time, I'm done. I'm just going to take a break, right? Have you? Any of you ever done that before? Any of you doing that right now so I know I can get a hold? Okay, all right. (laughs) It's it's tempting, isn't it? I've done that before and I'm about this close to doing that again not just out of anger, but uh, sometimes, though, as a pastor, when it's used carefully, social media can be a really helpful tool to have a pulse on what's going on throughout the congregation and the world. And so sometimes that's hard. It doesn't have to always be there, but I've really been tempted to take a break. My wife and I had a challenge one time last year, and we've done the same thing. We said, at this time, at this location, there's no news, no social media, so to speak, you know, like on our phones and things. Oh, you know what? We survived. We lived through it, and we're probably much better for it. I don't want to downgrade or or in any way comically refer to the events that are going across the country. When I mean events, I'm not trying to um, um, mischievously be um, uh, vague here or ambiguous, but there are a handful of different events that are going on. There's not any one particular thing, and then there's responses to all these things of all the events that are going on right now. Events that happen around us, like the situation with uh, George Floyd, with the situation of the horrible, sinful responses, um, some of the positive exercising of First Amendment rights, um, the uh, breaking down of society, the call for unrealistic or, in some cases, realistic reform to certain authorities. on the brink of some of the new uh, things going on. Any of you watch the, the, the space shuttle launches, the Elon Musk projects and putting man into space, um, the talk of the satellites for the, the, the internet network, uh, whether you believe it causes cancer or not, or however you want to look at all these different things. We have a lot of things going on right now. How many of you realize there's a hurricane? Um, off the, Well, now I'm getting into the weeds of not knowing all the details. But there, there's, a lots of thing, there's lots of things going on. And all of these things, and some of them, whether individual or altogether, they they uh, uh, invoke emotional responses from us. They tug at our hearts. They develop within us a desire and a want to respond in one way or another. You say, "Well, I don't respond. I just shut it off." That's a response. Everybody is, is, has an emotion or a response invoked in them, and I want to focus this morning on the things and the questions that come up for Christians and the church. There's a distinction there, and I might draw that out a little bit as we go. When to understand, in our response to society, There is a proper and biblical response for Christians as individuals, as well as a proper response for the church, the local local church. So, in light of recent events, there are a number of questions that may be raised. Maybe consider these questions for yourself. Maybe they are what you've been asking yourself and others. Some questions that come up in light of these events are, how should Christians respond to the needs of the world. That is a healthy, appropriate question to ask oneself. To think through. Another question would be, what should the church's involvement with society, or culture, be? What should the Christian's response be? What should the church's response or involvement be in society? Does the Bible give any direction on the matters of social responsibility? Yes, it does. It gives definitive clear direction and commands concerning the church and individual Christians' response and involvement and impact on society. So look at the first verse just uh, this morning. Then I'm going to have you flip over to Titus in a moment. But look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. God's Word says this about our impact on society. As we have therefore opportunity... Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You might write that verse down. I'm going to refer to that several times throughout this morning, the time we have left. Write that verse down and remember that. But also write down and turn to this verse. Can you do that at the same time? Write and turn. I'm going to challenge you this morning, all right? Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. These are two very important verses that are going to guide our thinking biblically on our impacting society as Christians in the church. So we looked at Galatians 6.10. You've written that down. You've marked it. Now you're going to look at Titus, please. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1 where God's word says, Here's a, here's a uh, Paul writing to Titus, and he's explaining to the church leader, the elder, this is what you are to teach the congregation. This is what they need to know. What do they need to know? Glad you asked. Titus 3.1 says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Those are Two very tremendously um, guiding passages when we consider our impact and response to society. In fact, let me just unpack those verses very quickly and give you a little bit of heads up on where those passages take us. Galatians 6.10 and Titus 3.1 both are pushing for and teaching in general and specifically not to just possess good character as Christians and as a church. That's assumed. That's expected. That's normal for Christians in the church, to have a good and godly character. But specifically, these passages are to move towards and to put into action good works. This is an active looking for opportunity. You've heard me use this word a lot, to be intentional. Intentional. This is a Christian's not just I have good character, but I'm intentional. I'm looking for opportunities to do good. I'm looking for any opportunity that I can to obey the magistrates and the leaders that God has allowed to and set up before me. So this is an activity, not just an indwelling, oh, I have, yeah, I agree with that. We're supposed to be good. Are you doing it? Okay? That's the call of these verses here. So as Christians, it's no strange thing to feel compelled. To care for social concerns. I mean, if it's a strange thing and you're a, you, you a born again Christian and it's strange and it feels odd to you, that you, you know, I, I don't know that I felt very compassionate about anything lately, then we need to examine your claim to the Christian faith. But as Christians, I dare say that many or most, or I hope all of you have have had your heart torn in a direction of either compassion or anger or for wrongdoing or or frustration um, and and, and love for the lost and those who are led astray. These actions compel and, and lead us to respond emotionally. But we need to channel these desires through biblical means of helping and reaching others in society. It can't be emotions guided only. It can't be just a, a, a reaction, response to society that leads us to impacting society around us. So this being said, we need to do a little more digging since there are multiple, more than I'll mention this morning, there are a myriad of well-meaning philosophies that come from, listen, well-meaning philosophies that come from bad biblical interpretation. So when Christians are emotionally compelled to respond and to help and, and run to the aid of society, there are a number of philosophies that, that people have pulled from Scripture by way of bad interpretation, that claim biblical passages and biblical guidance to respond to culture, but it's, it, it's, it's bad interpretation of God's Word. And so by way of an elongated Um, kind of introduction this morning, I think it's really good to lay the groundwork of what I'm talking about here. I'd like to name at least four of some of the most primary um, um, theories and philosophies when it comes to Christians and the church's response to society. Then we'll get to the outline of the message. So if you're ready to take notes this morning, there's going to be a one, two, three. We're not there yet. Put Pause on that and listen to this by way of introduction a little bit. Okay, you gotta put on kind of your thinking caps and I wanna make it as clear and concise as possible. And if you have any questions afterwards, I'd love to sit down with you, six feet apart, drink coffee, and talk with you. Okay. So I want you to understand, not just be fed information, but this is gonna be helpful. Some of you might be able to identify this morning when I mention some of these things, yeah, that's what I've always been taught. That's what I understand. And that's exactly why I want to mention this. And then I'm going to take us to the scripture and we're going to camp out and finish out the last few minutes this morning with one, two, three right ways to impact society. So let me give you some of these. Differing theories on the church's role in society. Okay? I'm going to give you four. One is the social gospel. You ever heard of the social gospel and those words before? The social gospel, even though some would believe it's a fairly new um, philosophy, some would argue it's a theology, I think it's altogether, with respect, bad theology, but the social gospel has been around since um, the early 1800s, folks, right? Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, right? Just keeps changing different names. So some of you galvanized senior saints, you go, yeah, they just keep putting new names on old theology. You know, isn't that the case? Well, the social gospel has been around for a long time. Let me remind you briefly and try to help you understand what that is. Proponents and advocates of the social gospel would say that man is not sinful in and of himself, but that evil society has rather sort of sabotaged him and caused him or her to be to respond sinfully or to act evilly. So then, with that reality in the social gospels they would teach, the goal is to change society with the ethics of Jesus. If we can just get society to do the, the good things that Jesus did, if we can get society to have societal christ-like ethics then we can finally conform society to being more like christ which allows saved man to be able to reach his fullest capacity that god ever intended for him let me kindly but very carefully and unashamedly point out some biblical weaknesses with that philosophy some biblical weaknesses with the social gospel is that really, in general, it leaves out the need for Jesus Christ's atonement for man's depraved sinfulness. It leaves it out. And instead of the need for Christ's atonement for man's sin, it changes the, the, the regeneration of depraved sinners into the reformation of deprived victims. The victim mentality is, is nothing new in society as well today. This postmodern sort of a thinking, it is narcissistic, it's selfish, it's depraved, it's lost, it's pagan, and the idea of I am just my bad is just because I'm a victim of bad society. And so, this is the approach that social gospel has to. Uh, To deal with these things. And of course, we can turn to Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 and we see that the Bible tells us there is none righteous. And we see in Romans uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not just victims of society. So you have the social gospel and it has biblical weaknesses. It doesn't hold water. It doesn't stand up against the scripture. Proper study of scripture. Here's the second one and that is the cultural mandate The cultural mandate. Again, nothing brand new. There's been waves of popularity throughout society and those that have picked up teaching along the way and bad theology and have have gone along through their Christian walk and developed some of these thinkings. The cultural mandate would be the idea that God's command to Adam, the first man, to have dominion over the earth. We'd see in Genesis 1.28 where God gave him dominion over the earth. Proponents of this cultural mandate would believe that, that, that God's appointed uh, 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 command to Adam to have dominion over the earth is as binding as the command is on the church to evangelize the lost in the world. And so the goal is to bring all culture and societal structures under Christ by man's effort, human effort. We're just going to reform this country to being more Christian, That would be some of the outworkings of the cultural mandate. And let me point out again yet another biblical weakness in that. First, I believe that Scripture helps us come to the understanding that the mandate was given to Adam for dominion over the earth and animals, not mankind. It wasn't a dominion given over other men and mankind. Secondly, another weakness is that the keeping of this mandate is not the responsibility of the church. Scripture nowhere says that the cultural mandate is a clear responsibility and commissioned act of the church. Rather, it is the responsibility of mankind and society in general. So one could say all Christians have a responsibility to follow the cultural mandate in following the mankind given um, uh, uh, dominion over the earth, but it is not given to the church, and it is not for um, uh, evangelistic, God-given efforts. So you have the social gospel, you have the cultural mandate, and here's another way of thinking it's common, and it's reformed theology. I understand that there's different sects and subgroups and, and hypergroups and, and breaks out of all this, but I'm, these are very, very general approaches here of explaining these things. In general, reform theology, proponents of reform theology, would, 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 would say this in response to how to deal with society and impacting society, okay? The traditional position of reform theology is a post-millennialism position, okay, well, We can unpack more about what that is later, but I don't want to get stuck on that. And, and, and this type of approach and this, this understanding of eschatological events shapes how they live and work now. And it draws the conclusion that through preaching the gospel... Eventually, the entire social, governmental, and and economic culture will be brought to the submission of the gospel before Christ returns. Now some of you got a little heads up on this on Wednesday night in our Bible study. A brief Bible study before prayer, and we're talking about responding to culture and what was going on around us. And we looked at what is wrong and what what is at the root of the breakdown of culture is the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man that needs the atoning blood work of Jesus Christ to transform their hearts. And so if we looked at Second Timothy, chapter three, verses one through seven, you can note that down, Second Timothy three, one through seven, particularly in, in verse one, we are reminded that this age we live in the age of grace, the church age, this age, we're waiting the imminent, we don't know when, but the very next event on the Lord's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ the rapture of the saints in the church. And as we await that, we are told in that passage that the world will not come to a reformed, all-Christian, totality-saved world, but that the rapture will come when it is full of sin and chaos. So we see the social gospel, we see the cultural mandate, we see reformed theology and one last one, and then we'll jump into our response to these things, and that is Christian Reconstructionism. Kids, that's a big word to write. Reconstructionism. It's putting something back together. Reconstructing something. So when you break over your tower of Legos, you have to reconstruct it. And so the idea really is reconstructing what once was in a perfect, sinless world kind of an idea. Others have have named it this way, a dominion theology. And so, at times, claiming to be the modern Puritans of the age, proponents of dominion theology or Christian reconstructionism, believe salvation restores man to his original calling and purpose and guarantees that man's original mandate to exercise dominion under God over the whole earth will finally be fulfilled. They'll even go as far as enforcing the Old Testament mosaic civil law and all forces mitigating against God's kingdom must be challenged, must be destroyed, must be removed by the church, militant and confident of triumph over culture. And there's some biblical weaknesses in this one and hopefully it's extremely obvious to you. We have a a, a solid hermeneutic and approach to studying God's word and we look at the, um, at, at, at the word as we study God's word it helps us to look at it in a dispensational way and understand the difference between the old testament and the age of law and the age of grace we're in now the distinctions between Israel and the church and so on some of the biblical weaknesses that come up from that type of idea and thinking is in order to enforce the mosaic law here's one thing to consider The death penalty would have to be incorporated for anything that would be a capital crime in the Old Testament. Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and so on. In order for that to be fully lived out. And that's not God's will in this age. The decentralization of government, the reinstitution of, even in some cases, some forms of slavery would need to take place to fully follow through with this type of theology and thinking. And among other things, this view obliterates any distinction between Israel and the church. The church is not Israel. The church did not replace Israel. God is not finished with Israel. And so here are some groundwork. If you're thinking, I have no idea what in the world we were just talking about. Here's what you need to understand. That even amongst Christians and churches, there is confusion on what a Christian and church response is. Is to be to society so consider this question have you ever asked yourself what should my impact on society be what should i be doing how can i make an impact how can i here's a common phrase how can i make a difference and as your pastor and as christians and as a church we have to go back to our final authority god's word and say all right what does god's word say how are we to respond to these things All of these theories ask the question in different ways. How and in what ways is the church commissioned to impact society? And all of us are constantly faced with the great needs of the world. And so our goal must be to establish what the Bible teaches, is to be our involvement in the impact on society. We were reading together a little bit ago from Matthew chapter 28. Turn over there for a minute too, please. Matthew 28, look at the great commission, and we see not the purpose of the church, but we see the mission of the church. OK? Matthew chapter 28, we need to understand there's a distinction there between those things. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19 and 20, is the mission. Of the church, not the purpose, but the mission of the church. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I spent a great amount of emphasis trying to relate to you that there's a distinction between purpose and mission. And the purpose of the church is a doxological purpose. It is a praising God bringing glory to God purpose the chief end of man as we see in scripture passages like 1 Corinthians 10:31 Romans 11:36 Psalm 73:26 all proclaim to us that the purpose of mankind is to bring glory to God And one of the ways, one of the primary ways the church brings glory to God is by fulfilling the mission that Christ has given us in reaching the lost and making disciples. You see the difference? A church, as a body, is not biblically directed to carry out social reform. However, the individual Christian can impact society for good. The church gathered can impact society for good within biblical guidelines. And so here's our big idea, if we have our big idea statement this morning that we're going to consider and what I believe these texts will show us and we're going to arrive on is that while the church has not been called to change or reform society, Christians can and Christians have a, po- can have a positive impact on society. Is that kind of like what's up here? Yeah, there we go. We can and we should have a positive impact on society, but when according to and following biblical guidelines. And so I think this is more often clearly understood, often in, in a corporate setting, or excuse me, in an individual setting, than, than rather in a corporate setting, and vice versa. depends on the circumstances, really. As confusing as that sounds. But because of that confusion, I want to help you understand how Scripture calls you. You can take your finger and point at yourself. I want you to see how God calls us through Scripture that each and every one of us, you can impact society. So, number one on our outline this morning, number one, this is not a guarantee that each point's going to be 30 minutes, I promise you, all right? Number one this morning, get it right fast, is making an impact through responsible citizenship. This is what God calls you and me individually and corporately to do as citizens in this temporal, worldly location, as sojourners, as pilgrims, as Scripture calls us, we can make an impact through responsible citizenship. If you go over to the book of Acts, chapter 5 and verse 29, we see a passage that we as Christians and the church love and cling to often, probably sometimes too quickly and Um, immaturely will quote this passage nothing wrong with the passage i just want to understand it correctly all right if you're like me subjection is not normal even for spiritual man being subject to someone else being in subjection to someone or something else is not a normal yay i get to be under somebody else's rule right if you don't believe me, come and watch my kids when they play a game and they decide who's going to be in charge or who gets to be the banker in Monopoly and all these kind of things. You don't want to be in subjection to someone else, right? How many of you love to pay taxes? Oh, good, all right. Subjection is not normal, even for a spiritual man. But Christians are commanded to obey civil authorities unless they enforce unscriptural demands. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 tells us, then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And Notice the whole of the New Testament together, as a good student in all the New Testament together, does not direct Christians to ever overthrow or fight bad people in authority over us. There certainly is protection when necessary for family and those close to us, and there is wisdom, and there is time for defense, yes. But you notice the whole of New Testament, you're not going to find anywhere where there is a command to overthrow and fight the authorities that are set up before us civilly just because they do not believe Christian ethics and principles. Scripture, not our human conscience should be the guide in dealing with these matters. Scripture is our authority. And so when it is prudent to disobey government, when when is it prudent to disobey? When should we? Should we ever? Yes, there is a time for that. Sure, there is a time for that. One of the easiest ways I've I've heard, and I repeat this way, would be to say it this way. So in answering the question, I shared this on Wednesday night weeks ago, When is it prudent to disobey government? Well, here would be an answer that's helpful to think of. When you are commanded to do what God says not to do. When we are commanded by government to do what God tells us clearly not to do. Or commanded to not do what God clearly commands us to do. See, it's just the other end of the spectrum on both ways. So when we're commanded to do something God tells us not to do, or when we're commanded not to do something that God tells us to do. Say that five times fast. You know, it's very important to take note of who those God-appointed unsaved leaders and officials are over us. Look at what God says about these individuals, men and women, governmental leaders, those in authority over us. Go to Romans chapter 13. Trust me, I fully understand that Romans 13 is not the only passage of Scripture that deals with civil obedience, Christian obedience to civil authority. We're going to look at several others, but go to Romans 13, and I want you to pay attention specifically on how God describes those unsaved, in some cases, bad leaders. How does God describe these authorities over us? Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good. And thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must deeds be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Verse 6. For this cause pay you tribute also. There's your, there's your taxes, command, for they are God's ministers, intending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore all their dues, tribute to Him, Trib- to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let me just recap a couple of things for you. In verse one, we see that God refers to these in authority over us, even those who are unsaved, as ministers of god servants of god yeah but they got bad policy they got they got bad ministers of god but, 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 but do you know all of god's plans do you know all god's purposes for you god calls them ministers of god be careful verse 2 ordained by God. Not just those who have happened to fall in place and those that we disagree with politically have elected into place, but those are in place because they are ordained by God to lead. This is God's Word. Look at verse 3. Before you think this pastor's gone off his rocker, look at what God's Word says. Verse 3. They are empowered by God. Empowered by God. God uses whom He chooses to use in the ways that He chooses to choose, to use. (laughs) You know, the Christian should not only be submissive, but supportive, even in paying of taxes. Ugh! And in giving respect So, in verse 7, we see giving respect. In verse 6, we see giving um, or uh, 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 paying of taxes. In verses 1 through 5, we see that we are to be submissive. And all these things, it's not done begrudgingly, but knowing that if this is God's minister, this is ordained by God and is empowered by God, and I'm to render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and I'm to give what is owed to them, and that's what they require. It's not what I would want, but that's what they require. I am to do so with a joyful heart and knowing God's in control. And he has a plan and a purpose, as difficult as it may be for me to cooperate with now. I mentioned earlier that Romans 13 is not the only passage that teaches responsible Christian citizenship. But if you were to look at First Timothy chapter 2, turn over there with me for a moment. First Timothy chapter 2. I encourage you to write down these passages and meditate and mull over and study them yourself as well later. But First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. I remember speaking to an old pastor one time I say that respectfully, he was quite senior in age. We read through this passage, and I was in a study, and he said, yeah, well, we got to pray for these leaders, but the Lord doesn't tell us how we should pray. And he was implying that he should use some form of imprecatory prayer and pray that the leaders he didn't like would just be taken out. I tried to very respectfully say, "Let's, let's look at the text again doesn't say that necessarily we're praying for them to be taken out. It says, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You see, the prayer, we can pray, and it's not wrong to pray for, for the uh, decisions and laws and policies to be made that would be more palatable for Christian living and easier for us. That's fine. That's good. Please pray that way. Praise God for, for um, leaders that, that hold to Christian values that are in place and are in the ear of our president and others. Praise God for those things. But our goal, folks, Christian, is not to create heaven on earth or church in government, but to pray and be obedient so that we can be testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ and respond in a way that no other human being would respond to even tyrannistic rule over our lives. 1 Peter, look at this one. Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering greatly under awful um, uh, uh, tyranny, really. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. All of this passage here would point out to us, says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Verse 15, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In being obedient to bad leaders, we put to silence those that would say, Aha, hypocrisy amongst Christians. We know God's word says to love and to submit, but you're not because you don't like them. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And the Lord says, do not live this way. Do not respond this way. It's harmful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our witnessing testimony. Verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as a servant of God. And the 17th says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so we see these passages continue to teach us, our submission is the submission to these leaders and these authorities in the world is the will of God. And to resist the leadership of these authorities is to resist the will of God. The Christian is to influence and impact society through the given legal. Roots of action, and so, firstly, we have seen this morning. You want to know how we, as Christians individually, as you can impact society. We have seen that Scripture lays out for us clear boundaries and a pattern for the Christian to impact society through legal routes of reason, of a responsible, an obedient, and submissive citizenship in this world. That's number one. Number two, very quickly, is making an impact. By helping, listen, other believers. Making an impact by helping other believers. If you go over to 1 John, we see this very particularly laid out for us. We see a primary targeted people group. We see a um, a specific course of action that is not only generally to all mankind, but focused on one people group. Listen to this, 1 John 3. 3 verses 16 through 18 says hereby perceive we the love of God this is how we see the love of God is what the apostle John is writing hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us we see God's agape sacrificial unconditional love and his sacrifice for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren verse 17 but whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother, and hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? Verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is similar to the Titus passage that we read earlier. The Galatians passage, 610. It's this love in action we can say all day long that we love the brethren but we do not love the brethren until we put that in action and by this we see the love of God and so the apostle John maintains that the new birth the born-again Christian should be demonstrated the new birth is demonstrated in the believer's life and action one evidence of your regeneration is your love for other Christians. I praise God for this congregation's demonstration of love for each other. What a, what a joy it is to be able to, can you excuse the term, kind of brag and dote on you all a little bit, and see how when there's one in need, there's others that come around. And it's done especially in a way that's not, look at me and look what I have done. Oh, prayers and prayer time? Let me just say what I've done this week for so-and-so and so-and-so. I don't see that. I praise God for that because it means that you are guided and you are led by the Holy Spirit and loving and caring for the brethren in need. That's compassion, that's love. But particularly, John is calling Christians to be helping other Christians primarily. I want you to see that God has a specific order and procedure throughout the New Testament for caring for the brethren first and primarily. Some of you might be going, that sounds a little... That sounds a little separatist and a little little, um, um, unfair. Listen, let me point out these things to you. I'm not going to read all the text to you. Let me give you some passages. James one twenty-seven. write this down, and Acts 6.1. James one twenty-seven. Acts 6.1. In those passages, you'll find orders for caring for the widow and the orphans. We know this as a church. We are called by God to care for the orphans, to care for widows in the church. We absolutely are called to do this. But in those passages, the widows and the orphans involved were the ones within the church. It's not that we love others, but hold on a second. Here's another example. In Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, you find another passage. And here is an example of caring for the needs of the people in time of famine. When money and supplies and work was in short supply. In a time of famine, there's examples for caring for the needs of the people. But in Acts 11, 27-30, the needs met were those of Christians who were in such a difficulty. Here's a third. This one's found in Romans 15, 25. Also verse 27. You go over to 2 Corinthians and study the Macedonians and look at chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 and see the same example here. And how... The examples of the congregations who rallied together and raised support and gave to those who were in financial need and poor. But the poor whose needs they served were always Christians. Some of you go, wait a minute, what is being preached here? We're supposed to show love and compassion even to our unsaved neighbors, and that is right. But I'm showing you an example and an order to loving and caring, as Peter, or, or excuse me, as John is saying in 1 John 3, 16, and 17, and 18, and in the whole of the New Testament. So in fact, there is no record that the church ever gave to those who were outside the church. I find that very interesting when we look at this. That's not a mandate that we should not, but we don't see that example in the whole of the New Testament. Now, the scriptures certainly do not condemn the Christian and the church from meeting the needs of society. That is one way and means in which we meet the need of society. And if meeting of those needs clearly serves to listen, facilitate the church's efforts in reaching society with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it falls in the category of this possibly might be a good way to reach society. Do you see? In both the Old and New Testaments, we see God's desire for his children to show compassion to the poor and the needy. Look at Jesus' example. Jesus said to the poor, or he says of the poor, that we would always have the poor, we would always have the needy. In Matthew 26, 11, Mark 14, 7, the poor, the needy would always be around us. They would always be in need. He also said that those who show mercy to the poor, mercy to the sick, and mercy to the needy are in effect ministering to him personally, he says in Matthew 25. In fact, even in verses, uh, Matthew 25, 35 through 40, we see that there is even a reward accordingly for that love, generosity, compassion towards others. And this sentiment is perfectly captured in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 31, where Scripture says, He that oppresseth the poor reproacheth his maker, but he that honoreth him hath mercy on the poor. And so we see that the the scriptures lay out for us clear boundaries and a pattern for Christians to impact society by primarily helping other believers first. It's not an only, but it's first. All right, deep breath. One more very fast one and we're finished. You ready? Yes, we're ready. Yeah, please. Number three. When we consider how you as an individual and we as a church can impact society, consider this. Thirdly, making an impact by witnessing with love and compassion. Making an impact by witnessing with love and compassion. Come over with me, please. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 22. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19-22, listen to Paul's testimony in these things, in reaching the lost. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. Doesn't mean that we need to pursue lawlessness to gain those who are without law. Okay? It's a sensitivity to where people are at. To the weak, verse 22, to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And then if you were to go back to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, you would see yet again, let me remind you, as we have therefore opportunity, who gives us that opportunity? The Lord does. Opportunities are plenteous, especially when we pray for them. As we're looking for opportunity, God commands us, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good, not be. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You know, you can easily find that the Apostle Paul desired to bring as many as possible to Christ. This was his passion. This was his burden. This was his calling. And this should also be our driving desire to impact society with. We see hurting society, aching society. We see poor, we see oppressed, we see beaten and stricken and abused. But what should cause us the greatest grief is that we are seeing society going to hell without hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. One is a suffering for eternity. The other is a suffering for time. Jesus says we will always have those who are poor and oppressed around us. But the greatest burden must be that of Paul's and Jesus Christ, and that is reaching those with an answer that will change eternity for that individual. Paul knew that in order to reach people with the gospel of Christ, he had to meet them at their level of understanding, and of need. And so being a Jew himself, you remember, the Apostle Paul often worshipped in synagogues and, and observed ceremonial laws in order to reach the Jews. When he spoke to the Gentiles of their need of salvation, he was often accompanied by a Gentile co-worker. Apostle Paul never contradicted Scripture in his philosophy and his approaches, but he thought outside the box and was creative so that he might reach all for Christ. We see the example of love and compassion for lost society, and how Paul in Romans nine to expresses sorrow over the lost condition of his fellow Hebrews. He says in Romans chapter nine and verse two, he writes that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. Can I, just, can I just challenge you, Christian, church, as it's been a challenge to me, that when you're seeing the reports and the videos of the things that are going on, the deconstruction of society and, and the rule of law and, and all that is peaceful and good in our society, let me challenge you to pray that your heart is filled with compassion instead of anger. There's a certain form of righteous anger. I, I get that. I'm not saying that we never have righteous anger. But I pray that our hearts, like the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ, would be filled with compassion because the answer is not just, well, they just weren't brought up like I was. It may be a part of it. It's because of the depravity and the sinfulness of man's heart that we're seeing what we're seeing. I pray that your heart and my heart is filled with compassion. The spiritual needs of society often caused the Apostle Paul sorrow, but it was not an ineffectual, woe is me sorrow. He was called by God to be a preacher to the Gentiles, Romans 15, 16. And he faithfully did what he could to further the gospel of truth. Then you come to Jesus, which is the the epitome, the the, the epitome, excuse me, the the, the pinnacle, the zenith, the highest example for us to follow. We see Jesus as our, our model. And we can look at his years on earth and his earthly ministry and how he handled living in the world filled with needs, filled with sin, In Matthew 9, 36, we see that his heart was sensitive to the needs of the world and society. And when he saw the multitude, Scripture says, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. His heart was moved with sorrow and compassion because he saw sheep that were lost in their own sin seeing the reality of the great need in society around him, Jesus remained focused on his mission. You hear that, church? His mission. In Luke 4, 43, we see, and he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God. I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent Christians, we are called to bring glory to God and we are commissioned as a purpose of the church or as a mission of the church to reach the lost for Jesus Christ, preaching, teaching, baptizing by the power that's given to us by God. Our love and compassion for society must lead to a positive but biblically guided impact by witnessing of the answer to man's greatest need, which is not social reform, but is salvation. And so we see the scripture lays out for us clear boundaries and a pattern for the Christian to impact society by witnessing with love and compassion. Let me end with this. You might write this statement down. A closing purpose statement of the text this morning. I think it's a wonderful distilling of all these thoughts. I hope it's helpful to you. And that is my responsibility. You can say this of yourself, Christian. My responsibility is to spread the gospel and respond to the needs around me in love and compassion. The impact of Christians on society should not be limited except that it is done by responsible citizenship. It is to prioritize, firstly, fellow Christians, and then thirdly, we looked at, it is to prioritize the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You individually, we as the church, are to impact society in these ways as we are afforded the God-given opportunity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge this morning from God's word. And Lord, it's hard, it's a tough pill to swallow. Convictions and values are strong. Passions are are, are strong. But we must be guided by Scripture. Lord, we're thankful for many that you have used, whether godly individuals or not, to help shape the society that we live in here in America to be something that we come to love and appreciate. But Lord, please extend this church's perspective beyond this earthly society to things that matter for eternity. Lord, I pray that you would help develop within us compassion, not overlooking wrongdoing. Justice must be served to all parties of injustice. But Lord, our primary response in impacting society is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enable us, equip us, empower us and protect us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.